I volunteered to die for the empire. What are we willing to do now for actual liberation and for actual communities that are striving for and working towards a better world? Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast, a project dedicated to exploring the world of anarchist and anti-authoritarian ideas. Join us in our conversations with radical voices in precarious times. To view our full catalog, visit our website at nonserviummedia.com. If you'd like to support the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviummedia. Remember to like, share, and subscribe to help spread the word. And so you can stay updated with our most recent episodes. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoy. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to the Non-Servium Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Williamson, and you are listening to the 34th episode of the show. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably caught wind of a not-so-trivial event that made headlines in global news recently. After nearly two decades, the United States military has decided to fully withdraw from the occupation of Afghanistan. Despite the U.S. military's extended stay, it has failed in its stated goal of fostering peace and stability in the area, and was unable to prevent the inevitable takeover by the religious fundamentalist, hyper-patriarchal, reactionary forces known as the Taliban. As a result, nearly 6 million Afghans have been forcibly displaced from their homes, 3 million within Afghanistan, and 2.6 million are fleeing capture by militants by seeking refuge in other countries. There are still many unknowns surrounding the withdrawal, and my guest today wrote an article for Crime Think called Afghanistan, the Taliban Victory in a Global Context, an Anti-Imperial Perspective from a Veteran of the U.S. Occupation, that largely focused on three major questions. How did the occupation impact the people of Afghanistan? Why were the Taliban able to regain so much territory so quickly? And what does the U.S. withdrawal and its consequences tell us about the future and how we might prepare for it? Today I hope to explore these questions and more with someone whose opinions derive from the first-hand experience of, as they call it, serving the American empire as a foot soldier for 10 whole years. Here's my interview with Mouse. Hey, Mouse, thanks for joining me and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. When we were trying to coordinate this interview, we had to work around your disaster relief efforts for Hurricane Ida. How did all that go? You know, it's hard to say exactly because it's a, it's a disaster and there are a lot of people that are hurting and suffering, but... I really enjoy doing that work with the people that do it. And um, it went really well. We're moving a ton of supplies from all over the place. We have multiple mutual aid distribution centers helping folks, moving supplies across the entire state of Louisiana. Our mutual aid space here in Southern Appalachia just got a ton of donations and is packed full, just waiting for drivers to take it down. So 
I'm really thankful to be doing that work and to be able to get on the ground, even if for just a couple of days. I enjoy the work because it's really relational. So, you know, it's whose house are you camping at? Whose house are you helping the gut? Mm -hmm. Who are you passing water to or bringing a generator to? It's super uplifting kind of work and it's extremely necessary. So it feels good. You are working with mutual aid disaster relief, right? Yeah. Very cool. So you went from being, as we said in your intro, you went from being a, quote, foot soldier for the empire to an anti-authoritarian disaster relief volunteer. How has your military training informed how you approach disaster relief efforts, if at all? Yeah, I think um, I've done disaster relief before. The first time I, I participated kind of in relief efforts was during Hurricane Florence with a group of people that I was doing kind of like autonomous community defense with. And we felt like that type of scenario was something that we were, you know, even if it wasn't something that you can necessarily train for or kind of predict that it's something that we wanted to do and it, it should be something in our wheelhouse. So I think the logistical side of things, looking at supply lines, looking at preparation, preparation kind of mentally, preparation around the logistical resources to self-sustain yourself, and things like communication, radio communication, and kind of a, a willingness to put yourself into a situation where there's precarity around safety and uh, security, I think all kind of like played into that, which, yeah, I would say is something that was kind of developed through my time in the military. I think depending on what folks do, what your skill set is, there's a lot of opportunity. I was an intelligence, so that didn't like necessarily help me with the on the ground, meeting people where they're at, but folks that are medics, folks that have a long time within like logistical kind of support and resources, people with communications experience, those things all have, I think, a, a really kind of great correlation to disaster relief. So what made you join the military to begin with? And how did your politicization begin? Yeah, there's all these things, I guess, when people ask that question that come up for me, but I was kind of raised in a military family. Both my parents were in the military. My grandfather on my dad's side was retired from the military after you know, 20 something years. My other grandfather was a World War II veteran. So it was kind of something I was always exposed to. Working class family, like couldn't really afford to pay for college or anything like that. And um, took out a bunch of loans. Loan repayment was on. I was kind of about to graduate without any real like career prospects or anything like that. So it seemed like an opportunity to like have a job, you know, right around the time of the, the recession, 2008. Also, I lived in a small community, a rural community. Our school was super small. And so a large portion of the student body kind of were National Guard soldiers and whatnot. And um, I think that like kind of interaction with folks, seeing people my age, a peer group or whatever, with, with resources and things that I've never had access to, there's a lot to it. When I look back on it, it was a lot of class escapism, an opportunity to like have things and, and do things and see things that I, I just wasn't, weren't available to me before. And so I think all of that kind of drove. And then also conditioning, not just from within the family structure, but through literally everything that was going on in the world without a political analysis. I think it's pretty easy to kind of be 
you know, those things are well-directed from childbirth. Just look at the number of toys that young folks have that are militaristic. It's it's pretty mind-blowing, but they're pretty good at kind of conditioning you into that. And so, you know, it's not an easy answer to just say I wanted to do this or that, but there were a lot of things that kind of pushed me as kind of like, I guess, made for it or something like that, or the ideal candidate when it comes to the recruiting efforts. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So did your political journey begin with your exit from the military? I mean, I hope to get into that a little bit a little later, but yeah. Did you become a political person because of your interaction with the military? I think it played a big role. Like I said, I didn't I didn't really have a political analysis beforehand. I kind of kind of considered myself progressive, but Mm-hmm. What I think I really was is I just smoked weed in high school or something like that. And so, <laughs> um, you know, like was easily influenced. And um, yeah, I, I actually like, you know, I got deployed right after I graduated college and uh, I, I deployed to Iraq. And as far as the mission and skill set did really well, got awards and recognition and all these things and got a job out of it when I came back. And so I was into it. And then what I realized, because I, I deployed for basically, I think, three times in four years or so, four times in three years. It's like, it's, yeah, it's kind of a, just a black, like, span of time in my memory almost at this point. But the process, getting exposed to more and more things, like I said, I got a job out of the first deployment. I became a defense contractor, seeing that side of things as well. And then kind of seeing, like, one, feeling a horrendous lack of leadership and purpose and like everything that was going on a lot lots of stress and struggle without like actually seeing anything tangible from it and and seeing more of the things that like that were actually going on versus the things that you're kind of sold and and stuff like that and so i kind of became you know pretty disillusioned with it somewhere in that that time frame but still like hadn't really thought about it or or more so was like doing my best to to escape it and kind of like push it down which i think is part of that cycle of deployments was just a continuous like inability to deal with things when i wasn't in that environment so i just go back to it as quickly as possible and i would say like what really kind of opened my eyes as to like what i was doing and participating in is i i lost a soldier in afghanistan in 2014 and um his death was kind of like that tangible physical thing that like kind of pulled the wool back and recognizing like the futility of his death but then i had a lot of interaction with death during that time frame and just like the fact that like all of these people that I, had come through, you know, all these dead soldiers and civilians and and whatnot, like that had kind of passed away were like real people and not just things on a screen or or presentations to commanders or a number of things. And so it fucked me up pretty, pretty hard. And I started just like looking for resources to kind of, I don't know, make a connection with things thinking, I, I think I saw an image of a veterans for peace flag or something at some time, didn't know that was an organization at the time. So I went there, followed a link to Iraq veterans against the war and uh, kind of feeling more in line with just that, like, you know, like peer group, I guess, or something uh, joined their organization at a time in which there was like a lot of change and they were dealing with some internal 
kind of like a, an important one of their organizers had uh, committed suicide. And so it came in at a really odd time in the organization, but it, it really started kind of connecting with folks and, you know, meeting folks and, and going through the political education process, like became aware of kind of what imperialism is and, and really thinking about like the role that I played in that and just the role that any, any soldier, regardless of what your role is in the military, you could be a supply sergeant, order toilet paper, and that toilet paper leads to some sort of readiness that allows other soldiers to deploy, that allows those people to commit harm and, and violence, you know, somewhere in the world. So really kind of figuring out that it didn't matter what you were doing in the there, it didn't matter what your thoughts were, as long as you were wearing a uniform, you were participating in that cycle. And so that's when I reached out to the GI rights hotline, which is a really great resource for folks that are currently serving and talk to them about my feelings, why I didn't want to be a conscientious objector and like, what could I do? And um, they really kind of helped me use some life circumstances and the system to my advantage. And I was able to leave the military. So So you might not have had a, a personal argument for wanting to join the war other than maybe conventional reasons. But in your opinion, what's the strongest argument you've heard for a U.S. occupation in Afghanistan? And why is that rationale ultimately mistaken, in your opinion? There's a lot of rationale. Like, There's a lot of things that get thrown out around that. So fighting you know, terrorists there ensures that we don't have to fight them here. And oddly, talking with some friends of mine, like it only comes up around like times in which the U.S. is maybe trying to like leave a place or or whatever. But like the to protect women, which I think is actually just rooted in some like liberal white supremacy and stuff. But any reason that's not like truthfully said, like if you were if you were a nationalist to say, oh, we should be in Afghanistan in order to uh, exploit and extract rare earth minerals or Part of our strategy for being in Afghanistan was to surround Iran for a possible ground invasion, which was, I think, really what the Bush administration was. Those war hawks were looking towards at the time. People aren't saying those types of things or, or speaking the truth. So they come up with these other ideas. And um, the truth of the matter is that Afghanistan, after 9-11, the Taliban did consider and did offer to turn over bin Laden that did offer to kind of a neutral Islamic state. And our 20 years in Afghanistan hasn't stopped terrorist attacks from taking place in the United States. Um, terrorism has exponentially grown across the planet, specifically around Islamic fundamentalism. Our invasion of Afghanistan really went far in destabilizing that region even further, and not just in Afghanistan, but in Pakistan and different places and in India, you know, in Kashmir. And I just think that. There absolutely is no, like, no, no good excuse that, you know, isn't being truthfully told it's good for someone, but it's, it's not good for most people in these cases. So, yeah. Yeah. And what was your official title when you were in Afghanistan? I was, I'm going to kind of like maybe limit exactly who I worked for and stuff like that. But as a contractor, I worked for a aerial surveillance task force. And so I trained soldiers to do their job in that aspect. And then as a soldier in Afghanistan, I was an intelligence analyst for a brigade level unit in southern Afghanistan. 
that was responsible for kind of managing the base that we were on, which was one of the largest bases in the whole country. So, Wow. Yeah. So a lot of people are willing to accept the fact that the occupation of Afghanistan is a failed mission, but they're probably hesitant to accept that the U.S. often plays a role in strengthening the armament of the enemy groups they're reportedly seeking to destroy. But you have firsthand experience of similar things happening while working, as you said, at senior echelon levels of the military. How is it possible that the U.S. could spend trillions of dollars on weapons only for many of them to eventually end up in the hands of the Taliban and ISIS? Like, what does that process actually look like? Yeah, you know, like it seems like a complicated thing. But one thing to like really consider is the U.S. is the largest arms dealer in the entire world. Right. So we're selling a massive amount of small arms and heavy weapons technology outwards. So. There is a whole, I'm an anarchist, not a capitalist, but there's like a whole thing to creating the market in which you have to sell, you know, to continue to sell your product and stuff. So that's like a big aspect of it. I think when we look like internally at these specific conflicts and small wars, what often happens is the units that the American forces are training or have equipped will lose those weapons in one way or another. In Afghanistan, especially here, you know, like recently towards the end of this conflict, they were just uh, kind of captured by the Taliban of units that are retreating. And we saw the same thing with Daesh in Iraq is like a unit would uh, abandon its base or would retreat or be wiped out. And those weapons would be uh, would just be captured that way. Some things that I also saw that at the time were alarming to me and, and just continue to like sit in my memory is just the amount of kind of participation in the whole process that U.S. forces or NATO forces, ISAF forces, and contractors were also playing. And that could be anywhere from like weapon smuggling up and down the country, selling things on the black market within those countries, trading them for something, some access to something. And then also like just the way that allegiances worked in Afghanistan too, like You could be in an Afghan national police unit or a local police unit or the national army and defect or leave. And that happened quite often. And so they would just leave with the weapons that they had. They would steal a vehicle. They would steal multiple weapons and take those with them and then turn them over once they joined the Taliban. Or like maybe they were members of the Taliban that had infiltrated. But the thing is, is and what I've come to like kind of even since working on that article and talking it's going down as well is just that there is this huge thing where anyone that was the enemy was kind of labeled the Taliban without like a deeper analysis and understanding. And that I think has to do with like kind of the laziness of of the analysts and the way that bureaucracy works. And so to say that someone was even the Taliban or whatever, they could have just been members of like a local warlords, commanders, militia that was a security force paid for by the U.S., And then perhaps they wanted some contract or perhaps they wanted to be paid more money or something like that. So they would carry out an attack or two to get what they wanted. You know, there's this kind of like back and forth. So to even say that at all times, like these folks, you know, that just the enemy was just the Taliban or just uh, specifically these kind of insurgent networks, it could very well have been people that were overall aligned with the government or with U.S. forces just wanting something else. So the opportunity was rife for getting what you wanted. I'll leave it at that. 
Damn. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's that's a lot. I mean, it makes you wonder the extent to which U.S. involvement sort of indirectly or maybe directly subsidized the eventual victory of the Taliban. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think you know there are things that I heard specifically, and if you think about it, when you talk about special forces units, these units that have the most money, have the most training, are also deploying to these places the the most are maybe developing very specific relationships with people that that may be the actually actually the destabilizing force within their region and like what it is that they're doing. So I think we definitely subsidized, you know, like we definitely helped. I wouldn't say we weren't the main person funding them by any means, but there are people that were without like getting into the specifics. There were people who were contractors on our base that were known to have affiliations with the Taliban that were receiving U.S. contracts and then paying the Taliban for access to the base. So there was just this entire process, really shady shit that occurred for 20, you know, something years, which I think like just proves to the point that there was no like real end state in mind, I think, for the whole thing. So that's intense and i mean i can't say i'm surprised but at the same time it's it's shocking you know Mm -hmm. so i learned a lot from your article but one thing that stood out to me was when you highlighted that the taliban was an organized entity that predated the u.s military invasion and how it essentially acted as a shadow government that collected taxes settled local disputes offered religious guidance and protection, etc. And apparently it also benefited from the tribal and ethnic structures of Afghanistan that U.S. NATO forces were never able to fully understand. Can you explain how tribal loyalties ended up complicating things on the ground, as well as why the military was incapable of collecting this local knowledge? Yeah, I think specifically with Afghanistan, there's a, you know, I don't know if this is BS that I learned in in like a cultural sensitivity training before going over or something I saw on a documentary. But there was this supposedly this proverb of it's a past few specific proverb of like me against my brother, me and my brother against our tribe and our tribe against the world. And um, I think understanding that within this like location there's been a lot of violence, there's been a lot of conflict, and it's been a really, as far as the state is concerned, like an unstable place. So I think that the relationships of survival that really, you know, like developed, especially in the past 40 years, were really rooted kind of along a similar line as to like, who are the people that can keep you safe? Who are the people you can depend on? And it really is familial ties, tribal ties, and kind of kind of at that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Like, like it's a very tried and true method of survival for a, a lot of people around the world to kind of exist within those structures. I think the reason why the U.S. was never able to fully grasp that is, one, we were not necessarily conditioned to existing like that. And so we just have different kind of ideas of of trust and bond and then also our supposed goal there was counterterrorism 
So you're busy focusing on terrorists. And for the most part, that initial time after the invasion, the Taliban had disbanded and there was a, a relative period of stability, but it was the actions of the Afghan government and the ISAF, which is the ISAF is like the broader coalition of nations that were in Afghanistan. It's bigger than NATO. It includes non-NATO countries, the U.S. So NATO was there. ISAF was the biggest kind of thing. But they really, by doing counterterrorism operations, by really kind of offending people, breaking customs, creating problems. And there was this kind of like reward system where like locals could be rewarded for turning over Taliban's that really kind of just really was exploited to the to the fact that if folks had a problem with each other, or if there was like some sort of rivalry going on, they would just turn each other over, which is why we have folks that ended up in Guantanamo Bay or, or Bagram detention facility that were completely innocent, right? Like even the totally wrong person, but they still ended up there because of this reward system. And so it was actually our actions in Afghanistan that like created the conditions in which the Taliban then were almost, for lack of a better term, like brought back into the picture. And so I think that we just never understood it. And then also that there was never really a focus at that time on like kind of understanding culture. Like you would get a, like, I I think my cultural briefings were really just a, an hour long part of my pre-deployment or something like that, maybe a little deeper Later, as the war like kind of went along, they started, especially the State Department and the military started bringing in sociologists and they started bringing in other folks to kind of help do cultural surveys to have a better understanding of like what was going on. But was that information actually making a difference in how commanders ran their like one year deployment or, you know, less than a year deployment? Probably not so much because they were more concerned with like the metrics of their missions and what they were doing, which again, like goes back to this kind of like reward system or counterterrorism objective. So targeting folks that may have some impact on the stability leadership in, in some way through tribal leadership or through religious leadership, but that weren't ever really affiliated or actually participating kind of in the insurgency. The U.S. obviously shouldn't have been there to begin with, but many people have criticized how the withdrawal actually took place. Do you have any thoughts on the way in which they went about pulling out? Yeah, I haven't like fully been able to really talk to people around us to know how I feel. We shouldn't have been there, and it's good that we left. Leaving in such a fashion in which the only viable alternative to fill the vacuum of the space that we're in was the Taliban was wrong. Leaving people that are surely going to be killed because of their participation and collaboration over the past 20 years was wrong. And I think that a focus on the humanitarian efforts to providing visas and lifting refugee and immigrant like quotas and stuff like that, it would have been the right thing to do. And it still is the right thing to do. We still need to do it. I think I read that it was 160,000 people were airlifted out of Kabul over that period of time, you know, a couple weeks ago. But there are a lot of people that are still there. And there are a lot of people that 
were sold this idea that their participation with the Americans or with ISAF would grant them access to these ideas of a better, more stable life. And they were just totally abandoned. And the U.S. did it to the Kurds as well, for the most part, just totally abandoned them as a partner force. And I think it's just this seems to be this pattern that is held true by participating. And I think it's just, yeah, it's absolutely trash. And it's unbelievably unfortunate for the folks that have been left behind and now have to, again, live with this like threat of death that they've been living with for 20 years and fighting to like hopefully not have to live under anymore. So it's it's really unfortunate. And it's um, the amount of just like unfortunate and humanely like, you know, in regards to humanity, like criminal things that have been done over these past 20 years by the U.S. is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's one thing to understand that the U.S. military is incapable of implementing peace in Afghanistan. It's another thing to claim, as you do, that one of the main reasons for U.S. counterterrorism operations is related to securing resources for the empire. Now, beyond what you've already explained, and feel free to pass if you feel like you've explained this enough, but beyond what you've already explained, how can we know that this is true? Yeah, I think I'm not going to pass because I, I, <laughs> I want to talk about this every chance I get is just that just examine the examine our budget as a nation, right? Like the dominating force of our the driver of our economy of our society of of our empire is our military budget we outspend something like 150 of the top countries combined or something like that the majority of the top at least the top 10 nations are supposed allies we have an absolutely war-driven society economy And so in order to sustain that and to continue to justify that, especially post-Cold War, we have terrorism and this endless kind of global war on terrorism that George Bush declared back in 2001. And so you can look at the the stocks of the top defense contract companies or defense companies have increased over these past 20 years by a huge amount. And being in it, being especially on the especially on that kind of like that, you know, private corporation side of it, I would watch like I was on a contract when Obama transitioned Iraq from, you know, Iraqi freedom to Operation New Dawn to the eventual withdrawal from the country. We withdrew military forces for the most part, but not really because that's a whole nother thing. But there were still defense contractors in the companies. But the company that I worked for back here in the States, like I watched as people kind of were like, well, we should, what I heard our company is going for contracts in Africa. Syria is kicking off. Like, I hope that we can start flying there or something like that. And uh, just watching people just, and, and these aren't even like decision makers, you know, these are, these are the the bottom of the barrel, like the, the workers these companies um just just thinking about all these other places that they can go in order to continue to have job security to continue to enrich themselves and do that and so that that's the model conflict in destabilized environments uh weapons the need for counterterrorism operations is the model and just like any other capitalist kind of endeavor it has to be infinite growth so there's no desire or need, if we were to actually strive for some sort of stability and peace in the world, 
then the U.S. would be out of out of business, and the companies that actually really kind of drive a lot of the decision making would be totally out of business. They, there wouldn't be a need for their products or services anymore. You know, I think we we really are conditioned here to have this kind of like binary idea of of like good versus evil, and for some reason we're always the good people, which is not true but like this binary does is absolutely doesn't exist in the the world it's a really infantile like kind of approach to viewing things and so when we can kind of like eliminate good versus evil and just look at it through all of the same conditioning for everything else that's occurring in our life this capitalist mode of production modernity that it's absolutely necessary for there to be conflict and so the u.s makes a ton of money off of this theoretical our idea around like small wars and so it's the war on drugs. It's uh, it's the war against terrorism. I really do fear that it is more profitable for a hundred year cold war against a near peer enemy than it is maybe for a twenty year shooting war. And I could see that type of mentality definitely exists within the current administration and the supporters and the people working in the administration. So that's why this continuous push to China as a threat, this continuous push to the Pacific as a threat. I definitely don't make it a an effort to listen to speeches that Joe Biden gives, but one excerpt that I heard was just that, you know, he said something around like, I want to deal with the problems of 2021, not 2001. And so he started naming Africa on the different Daesh or ISIS like groups that are operating in Africa. And he named think the Pacific and, and different places where he wants to kind of focus his efforts as a, you know, military efforts. And so I think it's just, that is the state we live in. That is the reality. And unless we can actually address the empire itself, then this is something that is going to continue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Joe Biden is, um, he's being a good progressive and looking forward to new areas to conquer and colonize. Absolutely. And it's been both part, you know, like what, like one system, two parties or something like that. But like, <laughs> yeah, they have been yeah. voting equally on these defense budget increases for the past 20 years. And Biden was always on the wrong side of history with right. his decisions and stuff. And just is going to continue to be for sure. Of course. Yeah, the bipartisan support is important to point out. And yeah, I mean, the bottomless pit of why Biden is shitty, you know, I guess we could go down a rabbit hole with that all day. But I've heard this particular manifestation of capitalism described as political capitalism, which seems accurate to me in its framing of companies that benefit specifically from contracts that they get because of military endeavors and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it's just it's not just Boeing and Lockheed and Raytheon that makes mm-hmm. money off of it. But I think it was a, a leaked Hillary Clinton email when she was secretary of state. Her undersecretary was talking to leadership in Iraq about opening up the country to J.P. Morgan Chase and to different types of like financial interest. And it was our invasion of Libya like was really meant to support, I think, BP and Shell, like oil exploration and within like. That country and stuff. So it's it's these extractive resources, it's uh, financial capitalism, and it's defense industry in and of itself. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's hard to it's hard to understate the uh, the overlap between those corporations and and what's going on. So yeah, thanks for thanks for explaining that. Another provocative line 
in the article is, quote, if the victory of the Taliban demonstrates anything, it is that the American empire is a stack of cards waiting to fall. It is capable of extreme violence, of killing in the most technologically advanced ways known to humanity. It is capable of extreme cruelty, but it is a paper tiger nonetheless, unable to conquer people's hearts and minds, regardless of the intensity of the intervention or the length of the occupation. That seems obviously true for the native populations and the places where they invade. But what do we do about the fact that, as we were just saying, war seems to be the bipartisan glue that captures the hearts and minds of most U.S. citizens and holds the establishment together? Yeah, I think there's a lot of important work to be done. I was one of those people. I had a very, like, kind of... uh visceral and tangible break from that system due to experience. But I could have gone any number of directions had it not been for political education. So I think political education in general is important, very important. And that's not like to say like big organizational stuff. The anti-war movement is not what it was 20 years ago. But I think political education around all of these issues really starts locally. For me, it's been a long period of time just explaining things to my family and to expose them to these ideas that are really counter to their entire being for the most part. And it's a long-term process of talking about it and listening and to do things. I also think organizing is important from a community level. I lived in a place in Virginia in which There was a weapons manufacturer, and that weapons manufacturer was a really important employer of the community. So there has to be organizing at that local level where these places are at. And then there has to be, I think, a broader, there there has to be internationalism and beyond the, the imperial border. So uplifting the stories of folks, supporting the people that are fighting the empire at its periphery that are aligned with your values and morals is really important. The types of things that go on internally in regards to extractive energy, energy extraction, blockades, occupations, sabotage, those things all have ripple effects on the empire. And I think those are also really important. Uh, Supporting political prisoners and whistleblowers is extremely important as well in fighting that. I think There is a desire, I know that I hold the desire, in which to see a different world. And I think reckoning with the fact that it will probably be a very long time before that world is able to come into being, and I might not be able to see it, but understanding that the actions that I take now, the things that I put forward in writing, in praxis, in my relationships have the ability to ripple and to touch things well beyond my reach, I I think is really important. And so there has been resistance to the American empire since the inception of this supposed country, since the state. And so continuing to support indigenous struggle, supporting here in America, black, indigenous, brown, people of color's struggle against the empire is extremely important to be in solidarity with folks around the world that are 
are struggling against it, I think is important. And to kind of break through that like atomized individualism that we've been conditioned to so thoroughly is really important. These companies are run by people that aren't totally removed from the rest of society. And so understanding who they are, educating ourselves about their efforts and what they do, continuing to like educate ourselves around the resistance to these things is important. Afghanistan's been going on for 20 years and the ability to have allowed ourselves to be removed from the conflict and from the struggles of the people there or, or the, the daily life of the peoples there or what's going on in Yemen or what is going on in Northern Syria and Rojava is really real. And with this kind of like onslaught, constant onslaught of disaster and problems, we can kind of lose focus on these broader struggles as well. So I think really making those connections kind of from the family, whatever that is to you outwards is really important and kind of breaking through the inevitability of the way it is now. Because it wasn't like this at some point and it doesn't have to be like this, you know, in the future. Unfortunately, we're seeing a rising trend of populism and nativism take hold globally. In some ways, the Taliban is spiritually analogous to some of the tendencies in the new American right. In fact, you point out this similarity where you wrote about how the mythology of replacement, feminization, and loss of power is a crucial part of the narrative which fuels reaction. How will the U.S. defeat in Afghanistan affect the rise of the new American right? For sure. I think about this a lot. What I see, I've, I haven't been an anarchist or I haven't been on the left for, I can't claim that I've been one since I was a kid or something. And so I feel new to this movement still, but I do have some time of looking at this. I have a deep, like a a while of tracking groups of infiltration into the right in order to gain access to information and stuff. And I have this analytical mind that the military spent millions of dollars conditioning me with that I have applied to anti-fascism locally and and here in the U.S. And um, I see this continued, or, and it's it's not even, you know, it's a continued thing, but it, it's, it's definitely something that has developed. And I've also just lived in rural space in the U.S. South for a while, my entire life. So, and have, you know, had to survive here. But there is this kind of, narrative that has always existed, but really, I think has really become hyper as part of the hyperpolarization that we've seen over the past, yeah, I would say the past 20 years for the length of this conflict, this this hyperpolarization, this hyper masculinity and militarization of our society has like really taken hold. And it reminds me a lot of what kind of developed in pre-World War II, pre-Nazi Germany of a stab in the back. And so I feel like this kind of defeat in Afghanistan and the rhetoric that I have seen, not just out of like the general right milieu, but out of out of folks that were participated in the conflict as special forces. You know, I do armed and unarmed like community self-defense. So I follow folks that are instructors or that run these companies in order to like glean information to bring back to my community. So some of these people are former rangers and Navy SEALs and all these other things. And these people specifically are talking about the stab in the back. 
And that has a deep relationship to the rise of fascism. And they're talking about their own involvement in politics, their own need to prepare. I think the the type of participation we saw from current and former military in the January 6th coup attempt is like a good kind of indication of where the American right is. And so this defeat, especially in such a such a high visibility manner, like really it like really put that onto a lot of people. So just one aspect of kind of that statement is that this has really caused people to really one feel betrayed themselves and then two think about this as a failure of themselves and are and they are it is spurring them to organize and to and to continue to reach out and i i really worry about the ideology that is held by these former special forces folks that exist on the far right because they are the most trained they know what asymmetric warfare is and they have a willingness to do violence they've been totally conditioned to it for the most part and so that is of concern I think it was a couple days after the initial fall of Kabul, a person, a a man drove up from North Carolina, parked his truck outside of the Library of Congress and said he had a bomb and wanted to talk to Joe Biden. And that also, the reporting at the time was saying, was mentioning Afghanistan. So I see this like driving people to action. And I think when you have based your identity on military, on this like America TM kind of mentality of of superiority and dominance and like all these other things. And then you start to see that kind of crumble before your eyes. Like I know that I I dealt with moral injury, but it's not the same thing. Their identity is crumbling. It is just being diverted into this anger and outrage. And so I, I definitely think it's led to a hyperpolarization. I definitely think that it has increased the involvement of former and current military folks into the right. It has given them a reason to mobilize. It has given them a reason to become active, has activated them in some way. And so I I definitely think that poses a threat, especially as our protest spaces, as our own communities are also at the same time becoming militarized, both through the state and through non-state actors. I don't know if that actually answers the question. That totally answers the question. It just doesn't make me feel safe, I guess. You know, it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's concerning. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something to watch out for, at least. Um, mm-hmm. While we're on domestic sort of issues, um, Foucault's boomerang postulates that when governments develop repressive techniques to control colonial territories, they will also eventually deploy those same techniques domestically against their own citizens. And it's important to point out, as you do, how U.S. wars are connected to domestic police brutality and militarization that primarily affects black, brown, and indigenous people in the states. Can you connect the dots for us on how these issues relate to one another? I think... Anecdotally speaking, like from my own experience of seeing this, part of my initial like step away from the military, I remember seeing a Wired article. I remember one, I was, I worked in an office and so I sat at a computer all day and I didn't actually have a lot of work to do. So I spent a lot of time online and I really became interested in what was going on in Standing Rock from kind of the beginning of the setup of the resistance to the pipeline when 
I remember seeing an image of indigenous youth on horses and in the background where like MRAPs and a bunch of police officers or something looking at them. And so I, I remember seeing that and that was a really striking image to me. And at the same time, kind of beginning that politicization process and understanding what white settler colonialism was and to reading about that and realizing rather quickly that I don't live outside of history. I'm actually, you know, living in a, in a part of it as it's unfolding. And there was a Wired article that came out or, or one of these like tech gadget articles that came out and it specifically was highlighting the types of surveillance equipment that were being employed against water protectors at Standing Rock. And some of that equipment that was in that article was the same equipment that I was using in Iraq, or not me specifically, but that were being used in Iraq that I had seen. And um, the techniques and things that we used over there were being used against water protectors. And that really hit me in the face as to like, what was going on? I don't, I don't think I fully understood, but I, it really bothered me. You know, it's one thing to see an MRAP. It's one thing to see these guns and, and all these other things. But when we look at the totality of the weapons or the equipment that are being used, it's much broader than just a bullet or a bomb. And uh, those things coming back and seeing that in place against people that just wanted clean water really did affect me. And um, the way... I suppose it works is twofold. The military doesn't make anything. It pays other people to make it. And so the weapons, the clothes, the just everything is made by a private company and is given to the military. And oftentimes it is sustained through private companies. And so when it wants to decommission something, when it wants to change to a more advanced technology or something, it's going to it's going to sell those and it oftentimes has surpluses. And so it's, then it starts to sell its surpluses as well. And so that's what the 1033 program is. It sells specific types of military equipment back to like local law enforcement. And then there's all these companies that are making things for the military that also sell their things on a marketplace. And so we had this, you know, we would call it off the shelf technologies is made by a corporation, you can buy it. Off the shelf alludes to the fact that it's sitting in some, you know, invisible shelf. You can just reach up there and grab it and, and pull it and has some sort of like plug and play capability with war and conflict. So all of these things are made. So they're not just made for the military, police departments, homeland security, any number of these law enforcement agencies can purchase this stuff from these companies. And so uh, they do, and then they use them. I think Palantir is a good example of that. Palantir was developed for the military. I saw it in use in Afghanistan, and it's also used by, I believe, the New Orleans Police Department, maybe some major California city police departments. Major cities are using Palantir, which is a technology that was created for warfare, but isn't even a weapon or anything like that, but is used back here in the U.S. at police departments. You know, and then we have, like, weapon designs. Yeah, I would say the AR that I have is not similar to the M4 that I was was issued overseas. But the fact that a police department can get that M4, a police department can get that MRAP, they can get any number of things at an extreme discount and then employ them against people is extremely concerning. And as leftists, we know about COINTELPRO. We know about like the lengths of the state are willing to go in order to like attack us and attack our movements. The idea that 
the problem is the police officer with the MRAP and the M4 and the body armor only is surface level. It's the fact that these intelligence systems, that these things that are equipment that enhances capability and their ability to surveil us, detect us, follow us, to, to know about us is much more concerning to me. But all of these things that have been used over there, I would say, are being employed in one way or another. And folks feel, you know, like I've heard maybe not so much from leftists, but from liberals and, you know, non-politicized persons like, well, there's posse comatitis, the military can't be used against the U.S. population. But there are so many ways in which around that specifically, but it doesn't even have to be because we have this occupying force called the police that is in every one of our communities. They're in our schools, they're everywhere, and they have access to the same equipment and to same things. I think the New York Police Department itself is one of the largest militaries in the world, if it was to be viewed as like the fifth largest military in the world or something. And then the tactics as well, the fusion cell surveillance and intelligence network that is in place in every state in the U.S. was something that was developed out of the global war on terror. The type of crowd control tactics, the type of SWAT and kind of these like specialized military tactics that police forces use are developed through conflict and warfare first and then integrated back under the guise of the the war on drugs or any number of other conflicts the U.S. has decided to fight. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's like a trickle-down weapons war economy, essentially, where they get these federal grants. I'm actually not certain how it exactly works. I think Bradley Balco has a, a book called Rise of the Warrior Cop that goes into detail about some of this stuff. Yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's no good. <laughs> yeah. So going back, I should have asked you this uh, before I just asked you this last one, actually, but going back to the topic that we were discussing just before that last question, at at one point, you warn us that, quote, if the victory of the Taliban in Afghanistan is any indication, what secedes the U.S. empire may be oppressive fundamentalism or nationalism. We should ask how we could go about fighting the reigning order in such a way that it will not be replaced by the equivalent of the Taliban when it collapses elsewhere. I agree, obviously, that this is a possibility. What are some practical things that we should be doing in order to prevent such a situation? Yeah, survival programs, mutual aid, community defense, bail support, and then organizing. And I think it's important to organize kind of outside of the context of leftist purity and meeting people where they're at too. I think there are a lot of people that are non-political that are organizing and our efforts can meet them where they're at and then to provide a vehicle to bring them over to our side. And I think that is really important. That's the work that I really enjoy in regards to doing mutual aid, not just with mutual aid disaster relief, but just in my lo- own local community. You know, we, we do food distribution, we do harm reduction, we do monetary support, we do auto maintenance. There's a lot of ways in which we can prepare each other and to start building and practicing and making the mistakes of alternative systems in this moment. So revolution is violent. It will create hardship. It's the kind of the the fact of the thing. And so 
we need to have alternatives in place that can help folks survive. And so I think that was at the root of the Black Panther survival programs. It should be at the root of the work that we are doing, making sure that we aren't leaving people behind and that we aren't imagining a world without them. So I think it is extremely important to make everything you do political and at the same time ensure that you are creating a space for people to also find those politics around the idea of values and and personal morals and stuff. So yeah, I think that's, I think that's what we can do for sure. So since there's an entire generation of combat experienced individuals that have learned the hard way that their participation in imperialist rule was based on fallacies, is there an opportunity to channel that frustration into actions that actually lead toward liberation? I think um, specifically counter-recruitment, I you know, never a part of, but I knew folks that were in like redneck revolt and stuff. And I, I was kind of always critical of their concepts of like counter-recruitment. And I think a lot of communities are critical of those ideas of counter-recruitment. I think that there needs to be folks that are focused on creating a space specifically for veterans to land. I personally, I don't like veterans for the most part. I don't like people that have served. It's very rare to, to find affinity with folks. What is important to me is to meet those people that have dealt with moral injury and have an understanding and a, just an understanding of the wrong that they've done. They don't have to have the language and they don't have to have the words for it, but they have to have an understanding. I think it's important to create space for folks like that. And I think that there is opportunity already that exists for us to be moving people that have that understanding into the work. There's work that needs to be done around how to show up. There's work that needs to be done around how to break through a militaristic mindset to take a backseat and listen to communities. And there is work around really the misogyny that is deeply important as well. And so I think there are some groups that do that. I would like to see more resources and energy dedicated to that. And this is, you know, a failure of mine as much as really anyone else doing the the work is that we just need to continue to create the resources and the ideas to allow people to do that. I've I've talked to people who have that I've been engaged in specific work with that have said to me, like, you know, the military told me I was fighting for my community. I was I was doing this for liberty or whatever. And I've never felt that until this moment. And so I've I've experienced that myself. And just doing some some things is oh like, oh, this is actually, you know, what community defense is. And this is actually being part of something that's bigger than yourself. And this is actually like working towards like these concepts of freedom or something. And so I think we need to be able to move people in that way. We need to be able to have the space for people to undergo the the education process to be able to show up correctly. Because showing up, I think, is is the most correctly is the most important part. Going back to Standing Rock, I knew some folks that were there kind of before this huge, you know, this huge military mobilization to defend Standing Rock which in of itself is like fucked up. And this white cavalry officer, you know, like going to lead a mobilization to defend people that were defending themselves already, you know, but they showed up to camp 
playing like some sort of like I think it was I think it was Revelry or something like that or you know like which is just completely out of touch with reality and they showed up totally incorrectly and in a lot of ways caused a lot more harm than they did and so I think that's the important part is we can organize folks and we can mobilize them when we create the space but we have to be able to make sure that people can show up in a way that isn't just recreating harm and that's that's long work and that's deep work and that's like relational work so I think it's important because if the space isn't there, then where do those people go? They go, they go to the right or, you know, they become cops or prison guards or something like that. And like, they continue that process. They continue that oppression. So it's definitely necessary. It's just not as maybe cut and dry as some people have presented it or have thought about it. And then also there is a limit to what you can do. And so I think not wasting your time on folks or people that are are so far gone that you're not going to find affinity with them. You're not going to find uh, an allegiance with them and making sure that we are doing the work that protects the communities that we are a part of. The U.S. failed to capture popular support from Afghan citizens. Do domestic liberation efforts depend on popular cultural support from U.S. citizens in order to be successful? Yeah, I think that's like a hegemony thing. The dominant culture, the fish need a a sea to swim in. And that's, I think, extremely important, not just from a a militant standpoint, but from an alternative. We don't have to be the majority by any means, and we don't have to be even a plurality, I think it depends on on where we're at and what we're doing. But I think to to have the support of people that are around you, your local community is important. And to do that, we have to be able to provide for folks in different ways. We have to be able to connect with folks in different ways. I think that my like rooting in the concept of autonomy is important in that aspect. Like I said earlier, like I don't think I'll ever see the end of the American empire, but I, I am interested in creating new possibilities and connections with people regardless of the, the empire. And so having the connections with folks, the ability to build, um, the ability to imagine new possibilities and to practice those is important to me. That doesn't require the, the majority or even the plurality of the people around me, but we are slowly building out and we are slowly bringing folks in and we were doing it regardless of the hegemonic kind of structures around us, you know, and that's, that's just true of, of being left queer or black or indigenous or anything. And especially in the U S South, I've lived in like rural spaces basically my entire life here. And um, we can still have a better, more sustainable deeper connection with the folks around me regardless of kind of like the control of, or, or, or what the dominant culture is so you said in the article that the taliban's success didn't come from their fundamentalism but from the fact that they understood that the real battle was the war of attrition is there a lesson to be learned here when it comes to our struggle against u.s empire and other reactionary forces yeah, I, th- I think importantly is the statement that came after that or shortly after is that like I, I do believe we will win and, and believing that we will win, I think is absolutely important. And this struggle that I, I'm only just beginning to be a part of and doing what I can to support folks that are actually kind of 
leading and really demonstrating the way that it can be done has been a long, a long struggle of attrition and just holding on to that belief that our values and our, our vision of the world will win is extremely important. And I think, again, going back to the survival programs, if we're going to continue this struggle, then we have to be able to meet each other's needs. And I think that's why when we look at mutual aid as rooted in this long, long history of indigenous and black mutual aid that has existed for 400 more years here, then we can see that, yeah, we absolutely can sustain ourselves. We absolutely can continue this struggle together. So, Earlier in our conversation and in your article, you pointed out that after you found Iraq veterans against the war and came into contact with information from the GI rights hotline, it helped you to leave the Army Reserves for good. I know you recommended active U.S. military members doing the same, or just to go AWOL, but what would you say to a young person who is considering joining the U.S. military? Yeah, I've had those conversations. I think those conversations are extremely important, especially just thinking about myself being young and the way that the, the military was everywhere. And so I think it's important. I think it's really important to listen to them first before telling them anything, because I don't even think like young folks necessarily take that like kind of decision lightly that they're going to join the military or the army or, you know, whatever, maybe they know where they want to go. And then I think it's a matter of explaining to them what I like to do is hear why it is that they're doing it, which is oftentimes around meeting very basic needs of being able to support themselves or support their families or to, get an education or to get healthcare in one way and making sure that they know that there are alternatives to that, that are not the military, even if it is just work or other types of service opportunities. But I think also explaining to them the reality of the situation has been important. So I, I absolutely have talked to, you know, to high schoolers, I suppose, about the reality of conflict and of war and, the way in which it destroys families and it destroys lives and the ways that it impacts people is really important to drive through. I think the propaganda machine is so good at glorifying warfare, you know, Black Hawk Down and saving just just recent, you know, these are the things that like I remember consuming, but just like Black Hawk Down and Saving Private Ryan and, and all these other movies. But if you look at the long arc of like, especially movies and visual propaganda tools, like it's been forever. And um, so just breaking through that and just actually letting them know, you know, like, what would you do if somebody broke into your house and ripped your parents out of bed in the middle of the night, I think is important because at least talking to them straight is one, respecting their autonomy and respecting, you know, their, their reality. And then also probably something that has never been done to them. And I absolutely know a recruiter is not doing to them. And then providing like some sort of support there are folks that do that in a lot better ways. There's folks that go into the schools to talk to people that, that I know of that, especially within like the Austin, Texas area, that are able to show alternatives and talk to the folks directly. But I think it is absolutely important. The schools with JROTC programs and recruiters coming in are pretty ripe for it. So I think talking to them directly, I think listening to them and to the reasons and then being able to like point them to other alternatives is, is also really important. 
you end the article with these words, quote, now is the time to listen to Afghan people, to support refugees, to support aid organizations, and to rail against those responsible for the catastrophe of the past 20 years, to open our hearts to new possibilities and new potential accomplices, to develop the skills and mindsets that will keep us safe as we go forward into the unknown. Do you have any relevant plans moving forward with some of this? Yeah, absolutely. One thing that I realized writing the article or but also just like being confronted with the kind of end of everything was that I, I have not really even thought about Afghanistan for a long time. And so trying to connect again and to support organizations that are doing work there, that are doing good work there. As an anarchist, I did what I could and will continue to support the Federation for Anarchism Era in Afghanistan or in Iran and Afghanistan. I'll continue to donate money to Doctors Without Borders. They have five ongoing projects within the country. Right now, it's extremely important that at least like life-saving like medical care can be given to folks and to do whatever I can to support refugees that are coming into the U.S. I live in a spot, evidently, through the resettlement program that Afghan refugees aren't coming, so I can't like directly support folks that are a result of these evacuations. There are other folks that can, and I'd highly recommend that. But also, I think confronting within myself and allowing critique of these three things that I've done and opening up myself to critique from other folks. Like I know I have blind spots and I know that I am also, my thoughts and processes are a result of participation in this conflict and imperialism. And so being aware and very open to critique. And then also... I think it's this is a practice that a lot of uh, veterans on the left can do is to be vulnerable and honest about your service, the things that you did, and then to recognize the fact that not everyone is going to feel safe or even want you around and being humble enough to accept that and to remove yourself from that space and that community until some sort of transformative process or restorative process can take place or to find other outlets for your efforts, I think are really important. I absolutely think it is important for us to distill the skills that the military has spent millions of dollars putting into us in a way that is accessible and digestible to our own communities and to the struggles of liberation that are taking place here domestically. And that is could be anything from teaching people how to use radios and talk on them. That could be looking at different types of manuals on counterinsurgency or whatever and deciphering what the hell they say, uh, so that people can understand them. That is putting forward our knowledge around surveillance or small team tactics around logistics for community defense efforts or for anything like that to train people on how to stop the bleed and to deal with gunshot wounds and to do any number of those things are things that we can be doing and that 100% will be doing moving forward. And then recognizing, like I said, that the military is a paper tiger. The, the things that we were taught also aren't necessarily the best things that should be done in our communities or on non-hierarchical, horizontally organized manner. So making sure that we're not just trying to proliferate the empire's doctrine into our movement, but more so being adaptable and understanding the nature of what it means to be on the other side of that conflict and stuff, I think is important. So there's a lot to be done. 
And one thing that somebody said to me one time that was they're absolutely correct and they're absolutely, they're not wrong in saying this. And this was right after the, the murder of George Floyd. But specifically, I volunteered to die for the empire. We all did this oath of enlistment or whatever, you know, like I, I guess not everyone enlists, some people become officers, but we took this oath and we took this commitment that was at all ends is really this like desire to die for the empire. So to really analyze what that means, especially from a leftist perspective, and what are we willing to do now for actual liberation and for actual communities that are striving for and working towards a better a better world in the future. And I think that as a focus point for the type of organizing that we should be doing moving forward and the type of action that needs to take place to like really confront this empire, this very violent and dominant system in our lives, I think is, is really important. All right. Is there anything I forgot to ask you about that you'd like to touch on before we end the interview? No, but I would like to say, like I said, just that I am like, oh, I need to like, I need to read. I need to hear Afghan people's stories. And I just finished. I had a long, long drive to the coast. So I listened to audiobook. And this came from a recommendation from another former veteran, but it's called No Good Men Among the Living. And it's written by an Afghan journalist, Anand Gopal, who spent, I think, about three years in Afghanistan writing this book. It comes from the perspective of a Taliban commander, a warlord within the Afghan government, and a woman from Afghanistan. And it's extremely eye-opening to the, the way in which the internal politics and the, the way that Afghan folks saw and viewed the conflict. And I think it's like an important book to lift up. It really helped just over the weekend to kind of help refresh and refine my thoughts around all this in preparation for this podcast. So definitely want to lift it up. All right. Well, I think we can end it there. But before we do, I want to give a shout out to It's Going Down for sure. Yeah. Uh, for, for hooking us up, for um, helping us make contact with you, Mouse. So everyone needs to go to itsgoingdown.org. And then also, obviously, people need to go check out your article on CrimeThink as well. Thank you so much for joining me. I think people are going to enjoy this. And thank you for your disloyalty to the American empire. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right, Mouse. Thanks. We'll, we'll talk to you soon, okay? All right. There it is, folks. I hope everyone enjoyed this installment of the show. If you liked this episode, be sure to check out our full catalog at nonserviamedia.com or at youtube.com slash nonserviamedia. And make sure to subscribe to receive notifications each time we release a new episode. If you're interested in seeing this project continue, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash nonserviamedia. And if you can't contribute financially, you can help us out simply by liking and sharing this episode. As usual, shout out to our existing patrons. Your support helps us reach a larger audience and helps keep this project going. Finally, be sure to keep an eye out for the next episode. Thank y'all so much for tuning in. We'll talk to you soon.